Today we're going to look at Psalm 13, which I'll read, and you can follow along. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, we're starting a new series, and I'm going to call this series Songs of Life. You know, I love music. I don't know if you love music. I love music. And I think one of the reasons why I love music is because songs have a a unique and a powerful way to drawing you into a story or into an experience or even into an emotion. You know, this past week, I I watched this documentary on Netflix on the Foo Fighters, uh, which made me want to go on YouTube and watch some Foo Fighter performances. And, you know, when you go on YouTube, they always offer, like, these, you know, suggested videos, and you kind of go down this, like, endless rabbit hole of just clicking on video after video after video. So uh, I did that this week, and uh, I want to, you know, I want to tell you this rabbit hole or this trail that I went down as I, was, as I started watching uh, Foo Fighter videos. Now, uh, let me also say, forgive me if you don't know who any of these bands are, uh, but I grew up in the 90s listening to grunge and alternative bands like Nirvana, and Dave Grohl, who was the lead singer of Foo Fighters, he was also the drummer for Nirvana many years ago. Uh, Nirvana was a band that was led by this guy named Kurt Cobain, and he ended up killing himself in his late 20s about over 20 years ago. And so as I was watching Foo Fighter videos, uh, I clicked, one of the suggested videos was uh, an interview and, uh, I, with Dave Grohl, and he was talking about Chris Cornell. Chris Cornell used to lead a band called Soundgarden and another band, and he ended his life this past year. He recently died by way of suicide. So you have here Dave Grohl talking about losing Chris Cornell and... Uh, he's also gone through this before because he lost Kurt Cobain through suicide. And I think the video was probably recorded but uh, before, but the lead singer of Linkin Park also committed suicide recently. And as he's just talking about uh, these, his friends, essentially, you, you see just so much sorrow and pain in his face. And that led me to watch some videos of other bands, and they were paying tribute to Chris Cornell, and they were performing some of his songs. Now, I I do like uh, Chris Cornell. I like his voice. I like his music. But uh, when I heard that he he died, uh, and I read an article about it, you know, honestly, I didn't have this really uh, strong emotional reaction to it. But as I was watching these music tributes and these other bands playing his songs and uh, in a way, dedicating right, that performance to them, uh, that's when I really felt emotionally connected to, to his loss. And that's when I think I started to feel uh, a heaviness and a sadness that, wow, this talented human being is no longer going to be or is no longer on the earth and no longer creating and writing music anymore. And I think my, my point is essentially this, that the power of song is, has that power and has a way to touch our hearts in a very unique way. Another documentary series that I saw this year on HBO is called The Defiant Ones. Highly recommend it. One of the best documentaries that I've seen. Uh, it's a documentary that follows two figures, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. 
you may know who Dr. Dre is, Jimmy Iovine. Uh, he was a producer. He was like a sound engineer. He produced a lot of uh, famous albums from like Bruce Springsteen and U2. And uh, he's also a, a great businessman. And so uh, it's telling these, these stories uh, separately of how they kind of rose, how they grew up. And eventually their stories come together and they, uh, they reach its climax with the sale of a company that they started together. And you know what that company was? Beats by Dr. Dre, which they sold to Apple for like over $3 billion. $3 billion with a B, right? Now, as I was watching this documentary, I was, I was again reminded about how powerful uh, music can be as an art form in terms of bringing people and inviting them into a certain experience. Um, and especially, I, I was reminded of that through Dr. Dre's life. Dr. Dre was part of a group called NWA, and uh, this was a, a hip-hop or rap group that, uh, of people who were basically young, black, and grew up in Compton. And when you listen to their music, and I'm not, I'm not making a commentary on the content of whether it's good or bad, but when you listen to their music, uh, I think it connects with people, even though you've never really experienced what they're going through. And you're kind of, again, invited into living life through their eyes in terms of being a young black man from Compton. Music is powerful. Songs are powerful. They, they are a powerful form. And I think the only thing that could perhaps make it even more powerful is perhaps if you share in that experience and then you listen to somebody else singing about that experience and you feel like that's me and you really connect with it. You know, the Psalms are an invitation, I think, to do that. It is, in a way, the Bible's own songbook. And they were originally written in Hebrew, so we're not always fully aware of the poetic details in the English translation. But these are things that were sung by uh, the Israelites, by the people of God, uh, in their own worship. These were things that they probably prayed. And personally, I love the Psalms because... And I, I turn to them over and over again. I counsel people to turn to them and to read them and to reflect and to meditate upon them because I think just like other kinds of music, they have a, a unique way of connecting us to this human experience that is oftentimes expressed in the Psalms. But, you know, unlike other music, right, the Psalms are in the Bible. The Psalms are unique because they're in the Bible. Unlike other music, they also have a way of connecting us to the human story the experience that we have to God's story. And they have a way of saying this, let me walk with you in this experience. Let me walk with you in this valley. Let me walk with you in this emotion. But let me also show you how to pray and how to process what you're going through in view of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And we need that because when we are in the valley, there's a great temptation to forget that and to forget that God is faithful, and to forget that God is good. And so today, we're going to start by looking at a common human experience, and uh, all of these experiences are not necessarily going to be negative. Uh, we're going to do some like positive things, like awe and thanksgiving, but today, we're going to start with kind of a, a downer and a negative exp human experience and the experience of sorrow or distress. Sorrow is uh, one of those things that everybody is going to experience in life, and I would guess that in this room, everybody has already experienced some degree of sorrow. And unfortunately, that is just the harsh reality of life. And we may feel sorrow for a variety of reasons. We may feel sorrow when a romantic relationship ends. We may feel sorrow when 
uh, a career is ends or we may feel sorrow when a friend moves away, when a dream dies, when something that we, we really long for doesn't happen or ultimately when a loved one passes away. And as Peter alluded to uh, in our worship services, uh, just recent events remind us of the reality of sorrow with all of these hurricanes and earthquakes that are taking place and homes being destroyed and lives being lost. Sorrow is all over the world. It's it's one of the most uh, universal human experiences. Uh, This past week, I was watching... you know, I was watching, again, uh, on YouTube, but I was watching a memorial service, a funeral service uh, of a man who died uh, last Saturday. He was a Christian author named Nabil Qureshi. And he was a former Muslim, and uh, he comes from a devout Muslim family. But along the way, he became a Christian, and he wrote a book about his conversion to Christianity, and that's how I got introduced to him, and that's how I, I guess, got connected to him and started following him. Uh, but he, he was also, you know, he also worked for a very famous uh, or well-known Christian apologist named Ravi Zacharias. And so he would travel the world and he would give talks and he would speak about Christianity. He would defend it. He would debate about it. And as a former Muslim, he was very uniquely qualified to, to talk about Islam. Now, about a year ago, he was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. He was only 33 years old. Now, I'm 35. He died when he was 34 he, he was younger than me when he died, and um, you know, that, that cut just kind of blows my mind. And uh, after he was diagnosed, you know, he, has a, he has a little girl, a young daughter, uh, but his wife was pregnant, and after, shortly after he was diagnosed, his wife suffered a miscarriage, more sorrow in his life. Uh, I was following him a few weeks ago, watching a video that he posted, and uh, you know, he looked very weak, and he said, I had to get emergency surgery and have my entire stomach removed and so he was dependent upon i guess the special liquid to give him nutrients and to feed him and to give him calories but guess where he lived houston right he lived in houston (laughs) hurricane harvey comes uh he shows a video my entire street is flooded uh i don't know if i'm going to run out of this liquid and i don't know if i can get to the hospital if something happens if there's some complication I don't know if I'll be able to make it to the hospital because my entire street is flooded. Now, about two weeks ago, releases his final video, and he says, you know, the doctors have told me they've exhausted all treatment options, and now the recommendation is palliative care, which essentially means um, I'm going to die soon, and the best thing to do is just to make my remaining days as comfortable as possible. That, that's grim news. That's really sad news to hear. And shortly after, last Saturday, actually, uh, I start seeing articles that he died. He finally died. Now, even though I don't know him personally, um, I, you know, I was, I was uh, very sad. And I think, I think as I get older, too, maybe I get a little bit more emotional. And I'm, I'm like, watching the memorial service. And because he had, like, a little girl, maybe, and he's, like, only 34 when he died, maybe I'm just kind of relating my life and putting myself, what if I was in his shoes? What if that was me? And there's just this kind of heaviness in my heart just thinking about uh, his wife and his child, knowing that his daughter would not grow up to know her father. Uh, I was sad that the world lost such a gifted teacher with such a unique story. And I was sad that the world lost a man who was so passionate for the gospel. But you know what the sad reality is? Uh, that experience of sorrow that his wife uh, is feeling, that his parents are feeling, that his friends are feeling, it's actually not unique. 
right? It's actually not unique. And people have been experiencing sorrow throughout all of history. And everybody is going to experience that at one point. And the reality of death is going to guarantee that for all of us. And here's what Psalm 13 does. It invites us to walk on a path, on that path of sorrow. And it kind of begins in a place of protest. But then it leads us to a place of petition, of seeking God, of asking God to help. And finally, it concludes in a place of praise and worship. And so we're going to look at this psalm, and we're going to spend the rest of our time walking through the path that this psalm lays out. And hopefully along the way, some of us will discover a thing or two about God's grace and his love in the midst of our sorrow. Now first, uh, let's, let's just look at the first two verses and this, uh, this protest that uh, he's making. This is a psalm of David, so that David is making. And four times what he does is he cries out and he says, How long? Right? How long? How long? How long? And I think when we find ourselves in moments of distress, it's a very natural question to ask, right? How long am I going to feel like this? How long am I going to have to live with this kind of pain? How long is this deep soul distress going to last in my life? And I think oftentimes the most difficult things that we experience in life are, are the ones where we don't really have an answer to that question, how long? Now, I remember one of my old professors talking about the death of his father, and he said this, you never really get over the death of a loved one, but you simply just get used to living life with their absence. And the pain and the sorrow, uh, it, it kind of becomes a part of you, and you just kind of carry it for the rest of your life. And uh, I told this to somebody, and I remember the response of that person said, you know, that, that is a super depressing thought. Right? That's a really depressing thought. And I suspect the reason why it sounds so depressing is because it doesn't give us an answer. The answer that we want to this question, how long? We don't want the answer to be a long time. We don't want the answer to be maybe until the end of your own life. We don't even want the answer to be uh, a year. That's a long time. I think in our moments of distress and sorrow, we want the answer to be uh, only for a short time, maybe a few weeks at the most. Sorrow is not, doesn't work that way all the time. Now, I want you to notice here the direction of the questions. You know, first, he's asking, how long, O Lord? Second, he's asking, how long must I take counsel in my soul? And third, he is asking, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And he relates his distress to three things, to God, to self, and to others. Or to put it another way, when he's thinking about this, uh, this complex experience of sorrow and distress, he's thinking about it theologically. He's thinking about it personally, and he's also thinking about it socially. You know, when we go through stuff, we ask those big questions, right? We ask, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Why can't I feel his comfort right now? But we also wrestle with these personal questions and the personal emotions, and we ask ourselves, how long am I going to feel like this, and why can't I just get over it? Why do I feel like I'm going crazy every day? And if it's a distress caused by others, perhaps we ask questions like this, why is this person doing this to me, and when is this person ever going to stop, and when will this person ultimately get what they deserve for what they are doing to me? Verses 1 and 2 of this psalm are actually very thorough. If you think about the human experience of sorrow and distress— But you see, the psalmist doesn't stop there in his experience of sorrow, and neither should we, which is oftentimes our temptation. We just think about these questions, but we just kind of stop there. But he he moves, right? 
He moves from this place of protest and this place of saying how long to now moving to this place of petition. And he asks in verse 3, he says, Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. You know, when he said that God had hidden his face from him in verse 1, it's kind of a way of saying this, that uh, I feel so alienated and I feel so alone and I feel so abandoned by God. He has turned his face away from me. But this prayer is now praying for the opposite. When he's praying, consider and answer me, he's basically saying this, God, turn your face to me again. Turn your face to me again. Grant me your favor. Give me your blessing. And even that phrase, light up my eyes, right? Light up my eyes is a a way of asking for that as well. It's kind of an idiom in the Bible for God's blessing because, you know, in other parts of the Bible, anguish is oftentimes described as a, a dimness of the eyes. Whereas people who receive are recipients of God's grace, there, there is a light in their eyes, and he's asking for that. And he comes to God in a moment where he feels like he's at the end of his rope, and he prays a simple yet intense prayer, and he says, God, help me. God, help me. God, be gracious to me. God, I'm desperate, and there is nothing I can do, and I need your favor. I need your grace. Answer me. You know, if you've ever been in the pit of life, those are deeply honest prayers that I think maybe we find ourselves praying. Now, there's also a subtle detail in this prayer that I think is worth mentioning. And I want you to notice this difference between how he addresses God in the beginning and how he addresses God here. You know, in verse 1, he simply says, How long, O Lord? Right? How long, O Lord? But here, he says, O Lord, my God. My God. There's a personal pronoun there. And I think that tells us a lot about the nature of the relationship. You know, if I were to say to my wife, wife, right, answer me. Answer me, wife. Uh, I think she would think it's a little bit strange. And I think she would think that kind of address makes it feel like our relationship is a little bit different, right? But if I say, my wife, answer me, right? Answer me, my wife. Then it feels a little bit more personal, I think. You know, I can't help but think for for some of us when we pray. I wonder if we pray and think about God as somebody who is maybe distant and maybe impersonal, maybe someone who is not near and personal and active and intimate in terms of our interaction and our relationship with him. But the psalmist knows something very important. He knows that it is my God. He considers us and he answers us. He hears us and he helps us. And I think that's a very underrated but important truth, especially when we are going through moments of distress and sorrow. You know, one of the reasons why sorrow is so difficult, I think, is because it has a tendency to make us feel alone, and it has a tendency to make us feel helpless. Uh, We feel alone because as much as we try to understand the experience of sorrow, nobody really fully knows what we're going through or what somebody else is going through. And uh, I think maybe what makes us feel alone when we're going through these moments is that the rest of the world just continues forward and moves on while you're stuck in this moment, this dreadful moment of distress and sorrow. And that feels lonely. Right? That feels very lonely. And I think in those moments it's important to know God is there. God is with us. I am not alone. He is walking with me in my sorrow. You know, certain kinds of sorrow, I think, also make us feel helpless uh, because we feel like our world is out of control. Now, control is probably an illusion. 
We go through most of our lives thinking that we're actually in control of our destinies, that we're in control of our days, that we're in control of what happens to us. But the reality is we're, none of us are really truly in control. And sorrow reminds us of that reality. And that's why I think it unhinges us because it reminds us, you know what? You're not in control. Uh, you're, you're actually not in control. And the world can flip in a moment in your life. You know, I'm very proud to say I've only been in one car accident in my life. And I've, I've been driving since I was 17. So that's uh, almost 20 years. I think that's 18 years that I've been driving. Only one car accident. You know when that happened? It was on Christmas Day, and I remember it. I was in college. It wasn't even my fault. So Christmas Day, uh, it was snowing a lot, and I was driving home. Because it was Christmas Day, I was driving home from church, and uh, the roads were slippery and icy, and I was on the New Jersey Turnpike, and I was only driving, like, this is on the Turnpike. I was only driving probably like 30, 40 miles per hour because I was trying to be careful, right? And uh, my exit came up, so I'm changing lanes to go off my exit, And as I'm changing lanes, the car just kind of keeps going and going. And I'm trying to turn, but nothing's working, and the car's just going. Now, this is on the New Jersey Turnpike. If you've ever driven there by, like, the Meadowlands, uh, there's, like, swampland there, right? And there's, like, this. So uh, as I'm making the exit, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to I literally said this, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to crash, right? I'm going to crash. And I I lost control of the car, and I went through this wooden fence into the swampland, and all of a sudden the front of the car starts filling up with water. And I'm like, oh, man, this is terrible. Uh, that's, my, that's my only experience of being in a car accident. But you know what? That, that feeling, I don't know if you've ever felt that, but that feeling of losing control of your car, and no matter what you do and turning your steering wheel and not, right, not kind of being in control of where you're going, and you know you're headed for disaster, but you can't do anything to stop it, that's a terrifying feeling, right? That's a terrible feeling to, to experience and to feel. And I think that's what suffering and distress does to us. It, it unhinges us, and it gives us that, that feeling and reminds us that we are not in control. And I think that's part of the reason why uh, the psalmist, he talks about being so shaken in verse 4. But you see here, this is a petition that shows a person who depends not only on the one who is in control to exercise his power and to show his favor and grace to the one in distress, but this is one who, who deeply prays for it because he knows that is the only thing he can depend on. Now, finally, and lastly, as we walk this path, the psalm ends in praise. It ends in praise and worship. Verse 5, it starts and says, But I, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Now, this is common in many of the psalms, though not all. Uh, I can think of one exception. But a lot of the psalms, when it begins in this lament and it begins in this protest or complaint, eventually it ends up in a place of praise and worship. And there is this resolve to say that even though I feel like I'm in despair, even though I feel distress, even though I feel sorrow, I will resolve to trust in the Lord because he is faithful. I will resolve to trust in his steadfast love I will resolve to rejoice, not in my situation, but in the salvation that comes from God above. I will sing, even though every fiber of my body does not want to sing to the Lord, but I will sing because God has dealt bountifully with me. In other words, because God has been good to me. And I think in these last two verses, we see the goal of sorrow. You know, we live in a very therapeutic culture, and so we think the goal Uh, is ultimately to feel better. Uh, But that's not always going to happen, and that's not uh, the goal of Scripture as well. The goal here is 
not to get over something, not to feel better, although God sometimes makes us feel better, although God helps us get over things. The goal here is greater faith that leads to worship. That's the goal. Suffering, you know, it's powerful. And it has, I think, the power to diminish our faith and to fuel this fire of doubting in the goodness of God. But suffering can also make us take the focus away from ourselves and press into God more. Suffering can make us more self-centered and therefore lead us into a path of self-pity. But suffering can also remind us of the power of God, of the reality of the rest that he gives. You know, one thing is true about suffering that when we experience it and when we go through it, it never leaves us unchanged. Either we go deeper into ourselves and become more self-centered or we press further, deeper into the grace of God and experience him in a new and in a unique way. In our sorrow, I think the psalm invites us uh, into this experience of sorrow. It calls us to pray to God in our sorrow. But it leads us to a place of making a resolve to trust and to worship the Lord in our sorrow. You know, earlier uh, I talked about Chris Cornell. Does anybody know, like, listen to his music, or is it just me? Why am I asking, right? We're not a congregation that responds to questions. I don't know why I'm asking you. (laughs) But some of your eyes seem like you listen to him, right? You know, uh, Chris Cornell, uh, he he did this cover of uh, Michael Jackson's song, Billie Jean. And it sounds nothing like Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, but I love his cover of Billie Jean and how, I guess, he reinterprets it. It's amazing. Listen to it. Go on YouTube and listen to it. You know, I love when music is covered and you kind of uh, listen to a song fresh and anew and it kind of intensifies the meaning of it. And when I listen to Michael Jackson, you know, Billie Jean's a very uh, cool and awesome song and you kind of, you know, you move to the groove. But when Chris Cornell did it, I'm like, oh, these are the lyrics, right? This is the meaning of the song. And you just kind of feel the emotion of the lyrics. You know, by the way, I love Johnny Cash's version of uh, the Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt. Listen to that as well. Great cover. You know, when they covered these songs, uh, it, it really opens up the meaning of the lyrics for me and their interpretation of, the, of these songs. It actually intensifies the experience of the original songs. I think the coming of Jesus, in a way, does that for us with the Psalms. You know, because of Jesus, the meaning of this psalm is actually intensified. And uh, the meaning of this song, actually, the true meaning of this psalm actually comes to light. You know, we said that God is not distant, but he is personal and he is near. Jesus, he intensifies the reality of that truth through his incarnation when he comes to earth and he becomes like man. Does God relate to our sorrow? He sure does. The coming of Jesus intensifies even the meaning of that because now we can actually say Jesus is the one who experienced all these things in verses uh, 1 to 4. He's the one who experienced fully the distress of the psalm. He was the one who was filled with sorrow. He's a man of sorrows. Because he knew, what it would have been, he knew what it was like to endure the cross. He experienced the reality of what it meant that God turned his face away from him. He experienced the reality of what it was like to be subject to his enemy. He experienced the reality of what it was like to sleep, the sleep of death. If anybody knows the reality of the experience of this psalm, it's Jesus Christ. And I think because of Jesus, the truth of this psalm is actually made intensified. But, you know, the positive truths of the psalm are also intensified as well because because of Jesus. We have a greater understanding of 
God's steadfast love. He would love us to the point of the death of his son upon a cross. Because of Jesus, we have this greater understanding of this great salvation that God secures. And therefore, we have all the more reason to rejoice more than even this psalm, than even David. Because of Jesus, we know how God has dealt bountifully with us. We know how good God has been to us because he has given us his most precious treasure in his son. And therefore, we should have this greater song to sing than even David himself. Jesus covers the Psalms. (laughs) And in doing that, we have a more intense, truer interpretation and understanding of the songs that are sung here. You know, David asks, how long? Right? Four times he asks, how long? You know what the answer is? The gospel gives us the answer. Because of Jesus, the answer is this, not for long at all. And maybe I would add my child, right? My son, my daughter. Not for long at all. Because one day, there will be no more sorrow. Revelation 21 expresses that. One day, no more tears, no more pain, because there will be no more sin and no more death. Second Corinthians 4, Paul when he considers his affliction, he says they are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory. And therefore, he, uh, he says this amazing statement that we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Now, as I said, sorrow is a very real experience and all of us will feel it. And I don't think the Bible says, uh, you know, just ignore it, just uh, make it lighter, just pretend it doesn't happen. I don't think that's the solution that Scripture is ultimately offering. But it is saying this, that because of Christ and because of what he promises, because of what he gives, because of what he has secured, our sorrow no longer has to define us and our sorrow no longer can destroy us. Because of the resurrection because of the gospel. There's always reason for hope. And because there's always reason for hope, there's always reason for worship as well. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. And, uh, you know, today we're going to celebrate communion. And so um, I'm going to ask you to maybe reflect a little bit. And in particular, maybe if you're going through a time that is uh, difficult and uh, maybe sorrow has filled your heart, um, use this psalm to to ask God to walk this path with um, maybe for others uh, just meditate on the meaning of this psalm into your heart because there will be a day when you will need this psalm meditate upon the truth of it and ask God to, to make the reality of uh, his gospel real and uh, after we do that I'll pray and then we'll come up partake and experience uh, the gospel in a different way as we partake in the Lord's Supper.